Welcome everyone to the Actually Autistic Podcast. And today I have as my guest, Moranike Giwa Anaiwu. Welcome, Moranike. Thanks. I'm so happy to have you here. You are one very, very busy human being. And <laughs> you were busy long before today because you have a bachelor's in international relations. You have a master's in special education. You're on the board of Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network and the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. And you're the co-editor of all the Weight of Our Dreams, an anthology written entirely by autistics of color. And you have yeah. some children, and you do a lot of activism as well. How many children do you look after? Five. Five. Sometimes they feel like 25. But. Well, it's exponential what happens. Yes. <laughs> but I understand. It's, it's wonderful and taxing and absolutely the most rewarding thing in the world to do. I wanted to ask you about your autistic journey, how you found out that you're autistic and how that affected your life. So how did you find out you were autistic? How old were you? All of that. I found out completely by accident. So it's really interesting because when I look back, you know, how the cliche hindsight is 2020. It's hard for me to understand how I didn't know, but I didn't. And so uh, I just knew I was me and didn't really have a, or a term for it or anything. But when I became a parent, actually, uh, my diagnosis followed that of my children. My daughter, my youngest daughter, she was in a Mother's Day Out program and the staff there were observing her and they would, you know, her first week or two, they would say things like, she doesn't know her name. And, you know, she doesn't talk to anybody. And I was like, of course, she knows her name. And they're like, but she doesn't talk. I was like, well, she doesn't talk a lot unless she has something to say. And, and then most of her speech was echolalia, but it was functional. You know, I understood what she meant. And, and they, uh, they just said, well, she's just so different from the other children. And I was thinking, what are they talking about? I mean, she's fine. She's just like me, (laughs) you know? So one day after I dropped her off, And then they also said she never had that period of stranger anxiety and crying and clinginess like the other kids did. And she just wasn't like that. You know, she was just a, she just was her, you know. So I was like, I didn't really understand what they were talking about. So I dropped her off and then I kind of stood in the, the doorway, kind of looked in the window through the door and watched her and watched the other kids. And all the other kids were just yapping it up, just talking, 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 talking. I was like, dang, these kids are annoying. Like, it's <laughs> talking. But I mean, I guess that they were socializing, I suppose, you know, is what they were doing. Talking to each other and hitting each other and dressing up and playing with stuff. And my daughter was sitting on the floor quietly. And there was like this piece of duct tape that was dividing one corner of the, you know, play area from another. And she was just kind of gently r- rubbing a couple of her fingers back and forth over it, probably enjoying the texture. And I was thinking, I was, I looked at her and then I looked at the other kids and I looked at her, looked at the other kids and I was like, okay, um, I guess all of them can't be, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> you know, I guess, uh-huh. you know, she's the one that's different. And so from there, we went to the pediatrician, you do the whole MCHAD and then you start doing all the developmental stuff and you go to all these different specialists to rule out you know, any um, issues with hearing or sleeping or this or that metabolic testing and 5 million different specialists and after that was all over, I started researching autism as well, you know, and, and other things. And so when she received the diagnosis after a few months of all of those screenings, I wasn't surprised. And so we were followed by a pediatric neurologist and a comprehensive um, autism center for youth. And we were there for a while. And later on, they suggested that my son 
showed some signs, although he was different than she was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see it either, but we went through the same process and he was diagnosed. And so one day we were there for a follow-up and the neurologist was, you know, Marenna Kay, have you ever been tested? I was like, no. She was like, well, you have two kids who are on spectrum. I was like, yeah. And she was like, and you always say how much they're just like you when you were a kid. And she was like, yeah. And she said, <laughs> and she stopped and she was like, you always say how much they're just like you and they're autistic. And I was like, oh, I get oh, it. Oh, ding, ding, ding. The light bulb goes <laughs> off, right? Wow. Yeah. And so how old were you when they said that to you? I was almost 32. 32. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so it was all Was these that years. intense? <laughs> It was just like, I was like, hmm, I, I, you know, I just, I just didn't really understand, but I was like, okay, I started reading and reading, like I started devouring a lot of different material um, about autism. And unfortunately I came across a lot of the, the martyr mommy, you know, cure B stuff, but mm-hmm. I am really happy that myself and then my older kids, we came across fairly early, some of the writings of autistic adults. And so I just reading a lot of things that really started looking more and more clear to me, but I also didn't know if maybe I was reading too much into it. And so I, I went ahead and although I believe that self-diagnosis is absolutely legitimate, I don't think that people just go around finding terms to apply to themselves. Um, so I kind of informally self-diagnosed prior to going to get the formal diagnosis. I happen to be fortunate to be in a city where there are a few providers that will diagnose adults. I know a lot of people don't have that luxury or it's not even really something that's affordable or that's Mm -hmm. safe for them to do for various reasons to have the formal diagnosis because of the ramifications in society. But when I got it, it was a huge relief. It made so much of my life make sense. I almost wanted to weep out of relief because um, I just, I knew what I was. I wasn't broken. I wasn't weird. I wasn't bad. I was just autistic and I just hadn't known. Yeah. So... Did you go, because I I just found out myself, and I'm 58 years old, and I found out four months ago. And Woo-hoo! Yeah. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> and I went through this phase where I had this sort of life review of yeah. all these events, and I feel like yeah. that's an incredibly intense rite of passage. So it sounds like you experienced that as well. Oh my goodness. Yes. I so did. It was like, it kind of reminds me of like in the movies where they show the person having like that life flashback that, you mm-hmm. know, in slow-mo, all, you know, and so it's like, I went back and I thought about so many things. I thought about being hyperlexic when I was young, you know, mm-hmm. and I thought about echolalia and, and the, the different stims that I have. I thought about all of the clothes that I made holes ripping all the tags out of, um, you know, because they just <laughs> felt like, uh, like, I don't know, like a thorn was pressing against my mm-hmm. neck or certain socks that I couldn't wear because of the seams, food textures, getting in trouble because the teacher would say something like, do you think I'm stupid? And I'd be like, well, not that stupid, you know, <laughs> you know, like uh, you know, all these hidden rules. But, I mean, I was answering them, honestly, you know, but nobody oh, but they asked, they asked you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you're asking all these rhetorical questions. I don't know. If you don't want an answer, don't ask the question. Yeah. I made so many things about the way I socialized and kind of these hidden rules that other people understood and some of the things that I had to do in order to just feel a sense of calming, you know, like with some of my stems or it just, it, it just made, looking back, I was like, wow, it, it, it just... It reminded me of the, when I watched the movie, The Sixth Sense with Bruce mm-hmm. Willis. And then at the end, when I realized that uh, what Cole knew, and I went back and there were all these scenes in the movie. I was like, how did I not get that? You know, like, <laughs> it was like that. 
Yeah, I totally, I totally understand. Did it change your the way that you relate to your kids? Did it change your parenting style? I mean, I understood that it would have changed understanding about your kids being autistic, but did it change knowing that you're autistic? It's interesting. Initially, there were certain things that they would do that I would just go with. For mm-hmm. example, my my youngest daughter when she was an infant, she was a very, both my kids were really relaxed and they didn't cry about much, but they had, they didn't, they gave me a lot of signals. They used a lot of, you know, you have, you know, behaviors, communication. So as opposed to a lot of speaking, you know, when they did speak, it was echolalic speech that was related to whatever situation, but it was from a cartoon or a movie or a song, but they also did a lot of things with their bodies to demonstrate that they wanted something or they needed something. So I read a lot of their cues and use those. So my daughter was scared of the dark. Now I realize that when you're driving at night, the mm-hmm. street lights, so it's horrible. The, the mm-hmm. brightness must have really been painful. I didn't really understand, but I knew she didn't like it. So after a one time or two, when she's screaming at the top of her lungs, the child who never cries, because I'm driving at night, I was like, okay, I'm just not driving at night with her in the mm-hmm. end. You know, that's how it is. Yeah. Um, they, the grocery store is overwhelming. Cool. It's overwhelming to me too. We just won't go at night. So I had already started to try to just shape my life in a way to where I wasn't putting them them in circumstances that were uncomfortable. And if they liked something a lot, we would just kind of go with that. Mm-hmm. But understanding myself too, it gave me a lot more confidence, even though people are different and they have different needs, different access needs, different strengths, different desires. But so in a lot of ways, there were things that I could understand about them. And so I could let, I could, you know, take it easy or let something go. Mm-hmm. You know, some even now today, you know, like the way that I parent, like there's certain things that my kids will say to me or that I'll say to them that I think in another family that they, someone would be like, oh my gosh, that's so rude. But we're just real, you know, with each <laughs> sure. other. And then, sure. yeah, and especially in families where it, my parents are immigrants from West Africa. And so there's certain things that are respectful. You call everybody auntie and uncle and Mr. and Miss and certain things you don't do because it's rude. And I could just, my poor grandparents would be, you know, probably turning in their graves at the way my kids and I talk, but we're just, <laughs> it's not meant to be disrespectful. We're just being real with one mm-hmm. another. So I do have to remember sometimes though, because all my kids are not autistic, some of them have being in a home being raised by me, they pick up some of the tendencies. So sometimes I have to tell them to tone things down. Like, okay, the way you talk at home to me or to dad or don't go telling your friend, oh gosh, that looks ugly. <laughs> Just say, you know, maybe you should try the blue one. You know, say it differently. <laughs> so I want to go back. You said that you were hyperlexic. Would you define that for us, please? Sure. It's so if I'm remembering it correctly, <laughs> it's when you when you read really early. Got it. I so for me, like I spoke really early. I read really early, and it's interesting because. You, when you read material, especially from people who are not autistic, they'll say, oh, well, they seem really advanced, but it's just that they memorize the words or they memorize mm-hmm. this, but they don't, they don't understand the deeper meaning. I'm thinking mm-hmm. it may not be that they don't understand the deeper meaning or someone, but a lot of, you know, even as an adult now, you know, myself in a doctoral program, as I'm a professor, I mean, all of these things, but there's a lot of things that I still don't understand because the way that neurotypical individuals communicate that they think is so clear is very convoluted for a lot of us. I think it's not that the understanding of the autistic person isn't there, but it's just a different communication style. My mom has a, and I'm dating myself, but a Mm -hmm. cassette tape (laughs) of me at nine months old singing the 12 days of Christmas. Mm -hmm. And of course it was not Christmas time or anything. I just liked the song and I liked the repetition in it. And I realized that a lot of the things that I liked growing up, like jingles and things like that, multiplication were things that 
uh, kind of had that stimmy repetitiveness. And, and I loved, loved reading. I read very young. I was able to read advanced level when I was a very small child, gifted, talented programs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And reading made sense. I could understand that. People mm-hmm. were harder to understand the reading. And then when I could communicate in writing, I could get things out in a way that I couldn't by speaking because sometimes the words just don't come to you and then later on an hour later you're like shoot why didn't I say that <laughs> but, it's, it's, but it's gone and then sometimes you can't form words at all you know you want to speak and it just doesn't work yeah nothing comes out nothing comes out I totally understand and I guess I'm hyperlexic also I didn't realize that there was a phrase for it but I was reading stuff that I shouldn't have been reading at five years old, like Shakespeare and Plato, getting really into Greek mythology at eight years old, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's, see, I wish that's what I had been reading because I was so bored with the books that I loved going to the library. I grabbed snacks and oh, stuff, but I read the sure. stuff so fast. Sure. And then my parents worked. So I would do this thing where they would go to work and I would sneak and climb up to the, the adult shelf because mm-hmm. there were, those were the only books in the house I hadn't read. So I grabbed the books right. and those are things I should have been reading they're like flowers in the attic and oh my goodness oh no. And, yeah. <laughs> oh no yeah I did I did one of my um, early elementary re- school book reports on Sybil I don't like yeah my parents got a phone call <laughs> yeah about that it's a they great started book. locking up the book yeah but I don't know if my eight-year-old classmates appreciated it you we're know? quite <laughs> ready for that oh my gosh so did you already have your bachelor's when you got your diagnosis? Yes, my bachelor's. And so it, it's interesting. I got, I was in the middle of, um, so I had my bachelor's degree already. I did that undergrad after high school before having mm. kids. And I worked in refugee resettlement for some years. And, mm. and I loved that type of activism. It was just really amazing. Such a resilient you know, group of people mm-hmm. that I worked with. And it was just amazing work. But the master's degree actually I pursued that because of my daughter's diagnosis, because I was so frustrated by being treated like I didn't have a brain. And so I was in the midst of that program when I was formally diagnosed. But initially, I pursued it because I was like, this is ridiculous. These, you know, people are so paternalistic, the way professionals treat you Mm -hmm. and your child and the way they talk to you and some of and then just the stuff, the immaterial out there, all of the snake oil salesmen and the you're just horrible things that are out there, but are so, quote unquote interventions or quote unquote treatments. Mm-hmm. It's just sickening, you know, preying on people who are uninformed and desperate. And it's just really sad. And I, I was like, okay, surely I, I'm tired of this all being a fight. I want to know something. I want to be more informed and I want to be able right. to inform others. I didn't even know if I'd ever use it professionally. I just felt like I need to know something because what I, being on Google to 3 a.m., you know, half the stuff <laughs> you find is crap and half yes. the stuff you find is good. Yes. You know, this person putting their child in a hyperbaric oxygen tra- um, chamber while they're shoving commercial grade bleach down their child's behind with an enema and their throat and the child's not eating gluten or casein or soy or this and they're being dipped in some kind of special pool and ABA therapy seven million hours a week and it's like oh my goodness that's been quite that stuff has been really really hard for me to learn about I think that's really been the most difficult part of all this and of course this was all happening without me knowing anything about it so yeah. In a sense, I feel like, okay, I, I need to know this stuff, but oh my gosh, I really had no idea any of that was happening. Partly because I lived in a really geographically remote area while my kids were mm. growing up, and nobody said anything to us about 
autism or Asperger's or anything yeah. like that. And frankly, I'm kind of glad because yeah, because I, the alternative, you know, the deficit so bad. mindset. Yeah, yes, yeah. I think it's almost like it's bad because in some ways one doesn't have the understanding of self or the support. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there's so much self-hatred that you find in some autistic people because of what mm-hmm. they've learned throughout the years yes. and or the abuse, the PTSD from some of the treatments that they've had. And so it, it, in a sense, it, you were allowed to kind of just be a parent and whatever your parenting style was is what it was. I also didn't know about, uh, much about autism. It really wasn't, I was in middle school the first time I think I heard the word, there was a character on One Life to Live Mm. Um, who's um, had an autistic daughter named Laurel. And um, so, I mean, she was swindling. She came into Pine Valley and she was swindling the whole town, um, like running <laughs> oh, a scam no. on everybody. Yeah, she fell in love uh, with Jack's character. Yeah, he was one of, he was an attorney on the show and he was one of Erica Kane's victims. But anyway, <laughs> he, fell, she, he fell in love and found out that she was laundering all this money. And But he didn't turn her in because he found out the only reason she was doing all these crimes is because her poor, helpless, autistic daughter needed to go to this special school away from somewhere that cost so much money and because this was the only hope for unlocking her daughter from her shell and so that's why she had to steal everyone's money and he (laughs) protected her you know well you know isn't that isn't that setting up these autistic martyr moms you know or (laughs) autism martyr moms i mean there it is right in the media that yeah. they get this sort of carte blanche that there's allowed to be evil. Exactly. In order because to Because your do child this. made you do it. You right, know, you right, no right. So your spouse, were you two, <laughs> well, you two were obviously together before. Yes. Before so you I found di- out. Yes, and it changed a lot for him too. Did it? <laughs> So if you don't mind, if it's not betraying his private life, what are some of the things that you feel like he needed to adjust to? So there were certain things that I would do that he didn't really have an understanding of, like, so that I, you know, I didn't infer. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. And there's no hidden meaning behind it. And there were certain things that I would do that he didn't understand. He thought I was trying to send some kind of strange messages. And then he realized later that, oh, it's a sensory thing. It's whatever. Mm -hmm. Like there's one story that he still makes me laugh when he talks about this. It's when, when we were dating. So I remember reading this book once and it was this woman who talked about how she loved the feel of powder, you know, between her toes and on her bed sheets and on, on her hair. And so now I'm thinking, so I'm black, you know, so powder in our hair. Nah, nah. But mm-hmm. I, would, I didn't think about that at the time, you know. <laughs> so yeah. This is like an older book. It's probably a woman who lived in a place where they didn't have air conditioning. And so, of course, she wanted something cooling and soothing. So I was thinking, oh, I'm going to do something really sweet for him. So I, I went and bought some powder, baby powder, and mm-hmm. I like put it all uh, all over his bed, like shook the whole, probably half the container all over his entire bed. And then I put it in, in, in his shoes. I put probably like the, the other half of the container in each shoe. And, um, and so I was so excited and proud of myself. And so he came and he tried to, he came and he sat down on his bed and when he sat like a cloud of, of like gray, you know, his white air popped in the air. And he's like, huh? He's like, what's going on? I was like, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm like, I put powder in your bed. Isn't that awesome? And he's thinking, is she trying to say I think or what, what the uh, heck? So he was confused, but he's, he's trying to be like, okay, I don't understand this, but all right. So he sits down again, another cloud pops. He's like, how much powder is on here? And, and so he's like, he was like, let me just go shake it outside on the porch. 
So he goes to put on his shoes and then he sticks his foot in there and it's like a mountain of powder in one foot, you know, and then the other. And so he just looks at me like, what is with this woman? And so like, you know, later on after the fact, he told me that I thought I was trying to say his feet thing. I was like, no, I just read it. I thought it was nice. And so it was stuff that like that, that I would do that he just didn't get. And, and so it just was really weird stuff. And there's certain things that he would do. Like, I, I don't like being kissed on the ear. Like some women think that's, mm-hmm. you know, really hot. Sure. Ugh. You know what I mean? Like, I just right, can't deal right. with that. So there's, it's just interesting. There's certain foods I can't deal with because of texture. So going to certain restaurants, or I don't like, like, for example, I don't drink. So mm-hmm. because of the taste, the, 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 it's too strong for me. You know, mm-hmm. there's a huge aversion. So I know like some people like the taste, but I can't stand it. I also don't like soda. So certain mm-hmm. places or certain things that someone, you give someone that I didn't really like. It's funny. Now he's become a lot more open and communicates a lot like me and kind of gets to very direct. And and he's been like my interpreter, letting you know about what neurotypical people, I'm sorry, neurotypical people think or what they really mm-hmm. mean. I'll run something by him and be like, honey, such and such and such and such said this. What do you think it really means? Because I know it doesn't mean what they say. You right, know? Like, right. Like Isn't that helpful? Cold. Yeah. 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 That's, so he's awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm so, I'm always so happy to hear when people are in love and happy with their partner and finding a way because it's hard for any couple to get along. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, marriage is difficult yeah. and it's a lot of work. Yeah. It and is, yeah. I do feel like going through this autistic journey that it does open up a lot of conversations and in a way it takes a lot of the pressure off of a relationship because like you're saying originally he thought, "Oh, she's trying to tell me something." Now, if there's a misunderstanding, then you can just shrug and go, oh, well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Whoopsie. There's another one. Fun. Yeah. (laughs) So I watched you do a talk for, I think it's called Flying University, which I'm not sure why it's called that, but it's kind of a cool name. And you gave a really wonderful talk. I want to encourage all of our listeners just to Google Mornike Flying University Autism. And I'm pretty sure it will pop up for you really quickly, but I'll also have a link on the website for it. And you talked about a lot of really interesting things in there, but I really want to talk about intersectionality and what that means specifically for autism. I feel like people, to me, it it seems like a fairly simple concept. It's kind of a Venn diagram idea. Yeah. But I'm hearing a lot of strange interpretations of the idea. So let's yeah. let's go over intersectionality. Sure. But if it's okay, could I also say something briefly about the Flying University, why it's called that? Please do. Okay. And I'm hoping I get this correct also. So because it was something that was told to me and it was like over a year ago, but if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. um, a long time ago in Eastern Europe, there were places where people were not able to obtain schooling for various reasons, finances or distance or what have you. So people would come in and bring lectures or material or knowledge to people, mm. kind of like a traveling school of sorts. So hence flying university because it would go from place to place. So that way it was bringing wow. the knowledge to people instead of expecting people to have to come to the, the academy 
to get it. Yes. And so I just loved that concept. And so when they, because when they initially told us about it, I was like, I, I, I Googled it because I was like, that's weird flying. We're, yeah. like, like, I'm not, not a pilot school. So like, what are we, you know? <laughs> so I thought that was cool. But yes, but the, the concept of inter- intersectionality, it's, it's, you're right. You're so right when you say that there's a lot of weird interpretations. It's almost kind of like when you see inclusion and neurodiversity, like you see like supported mm-hmm. living centers, institutions talking about inclusion. I'm like, you are like the uh, freaking opposite of inclusion. You know, mm-hmm. like you're like segregation. What do you mean inclusion? People like bastardizing a term. Essentially, from the, the, the definition that I like best is from Kimberlake, Dr. Kimberlake Crenshaw, I'm talking about kind of like overlapping layers of oppression from a person's various different identities. And so one, one analogy that I like that Dr. Crenshaw uses is, and I've actually done this in like a speaking engagement where I've asked people to stand. And so she said, imagine kind of like a four-way stoplight or whatever. So it's a car coming north, a car coming south, a car coming east, a car coming west. They're all coming, converging together. At a certain point, they're going to, they're going to intersect. They're going to mm-hmm. hit one another. And so you can't, it's not like only this part of you was hit or this part. All of the cars connected are touching. And mm-hmm. so for autistic people, often people want to look at just our diagnosis. And that's certainly absolutely a huge part of who we are. And we know that this is a very ableist society society that we live in. So uh, absolutely our neurology filters how we see the world, experience the world, and so on. But one's gender is also a, a factor as well. One's mm-hmm. age, one's socioeconomic status, one's race, and so on. So all of those other factors of identity, other areas where you might already be marginalized. So as an autistic person, you're already, quote unquote, less than, half, not um, a real person or not, mm-hmm. don't, don't, not seen as having the same understanding or personhood as someone else. And then when you add the other layers, oh, and then also you were in a homophobic society. So if this person is queer and mm-hmm. autistic, so now you're not only disabled, but now people are trying to deny your rights for this reason. Or if you're a gender minority, non-binary or a woman or what have you, then there's the whole underdiagnosis in autism or there's all of these other factors that come into play and then the racial aspect in terms of how it impacts you with the risks of being a a victim of violence or criminal justice system or being misunderstood by others and misperceived. It's just all, like you said, I love the Venn diagram, that example. I'm going to have to remember that because it really is kind of like a a little bit of everything kind of converging Mm -hmm. at once. And I mean, it's, it's real. It's who we are. And like, I think because you're mentioning, it seems simple because I think we have no choice, like autistic people, but to kind of live and function in an intersectional way because that's, we, by default, have one marginalization and usually more than one. So mm-hmm. we have to learn to kind of dance and shift amongst our different identities. But for other people, some of the identities that they have are more privileged ones. And so therefore, they may not have that understanding of how you can have these different dynamics existing in one person and how it impacts your life. Like me as an autistic woman who is speaking, I get have a lot more privilege than, I'm a black woman, but I'm speaking. There could be a a white autistic person who is non-speaking and the way that that person will be treated by a cashier or whatever is worse than me, despite the fact that I'm a racial minority and they are not because of the discrimination that people who are non-speaking face and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you have somebody like Bill Gates, who we yeah. know is autistic, and yeah. as a middle-aged white guy with a background in computers, that's all yeah. seen as a good thing. 
for him. Exactly. It's fine if he's socially awkward and blunt. Everybody just thinks that's kind of cute somehow. But yeah. <laughs> but you exactly. know, if we do it, we get fired, don't we? So there, there yes, you have seriously. It. Yeah, so it's so you, true. Did you try to do regular jobs before? Did you have any luck? having kind of job jobs or did so you So the thing with me oh I'm sorry let me let you no, finish. No, I always go have ahead. trouble figuring out I always oh, have trouble figuring out when a question's winding down. <laughs> but um <laughs> the way that I work, so it's interesting. I'm an either on or off person. I can't do something if I um, don't like it. So mm-hmm. I know that that's life. You know, for example, obviously, I mean, people have to, I don't know, wash dishes or whatever. I don't like that. You know, I have kids now, so I don't wash many dishes. But anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> thank goodness for chores and loading the dishwasher. But, oh, no kidding. Um, right. But think about like jobs. So when I was in high school, there'd be a lot of kids who'd have the Carl's Jr. job or the grocery store. Not They don't like the job, but they like the paycheck. They just want mm-hmm. some experience. Well, if there isn't something that I could find interesting in what I'm doing, I'm going to suck at it. I'm not going to be good at it. So mm-hmm. um, I, every job, so it's interesting. I applied, you know, like a lot of my peers in high school, I applied for the different entry level jobs that a lot of people get and I didn't get one. And I was really sad. I was like, everybody else is getting these little jobs and I didn't get one. And I finally got a job quite completely by accident. I applied for a, a department store position cashier I'd fill out an application like everybody else and people were getting interviews and hired I wasn't getting anything mm-hmm. and then I called to ask about let me check on my application so I called the store and I didn't realize at the time if they don't call you so they don't want you but you know, I, didn't get right, that. So right. I called and wanted to ask what was going on about mine so they transferred me to the, the, the it happened to be the department manager and he talked to me for a few minutes and then he asked me to come in and I was like, yay. And so he came in and he asked me some more questions, had me read some things. And then he asked a few more questions. And then he, so then he told me, he said, has anyone ever told you anything about your voice? And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, you know, you do imitations so well. And I read a few things and you switch and you have a really, I don't know, there was a word that he used that I can't recall, but he was like, it's almost kind of robotic, but it's animated. He said, I think you should be, you'd be great for a part-time operator position. So he oh. hired me because I wasn't, personable and everything but because right. I had I could they had things that they did live instead of recorded like every 30 minutes attention customers please <laughs> do not have your children standing on the shopping cart thank you wow, ladies and gentlemen really yes <laughs> we will be closing in 30 minutes please assemble all of your items and make your way to the checkout line we appreciate your business <laughs> stuff like that so he was like so that was my first job and I it was cool because that. I loved it because I could be on the phone with my friends and still work because I was, I was a phone operator, so I was answering the phone, so I could be talking to some one of my little friends from school on one line, and then I could answer the phone for work. <laughs> but other than that, but most of the jobs that I've had have been, I think I was just kind of born with a streak of desiring activism, advocacy, wanting to see change. I've always hated inequality and things of that nature, so I've done volunteer and work positions. Like everything that I, almost every job I've ever interviewed for, I've pretty much gotten because I will look, I'll look at a million different positions and when I find one that's really really just just it's like the position like it strikes me uh, something about it and then I start devouring information about the organization what they stand for what they do their mission some of the previous things that they've done and maybe press releases and so when I go in there to interview I'm so hyped up about the place (laughs) that um, it's infectious and it like shows and so even some of the things in terms of maybe not having the best joint interaction with in terms of the back and forth communication or the eye contact, you know, just I think they see the passion and the zeal. 
and they kind of overlook the whatever is not unconventional. So the jobs that I've had, worked in refugee resettlement, I've worked in urban education, different nonprofit positions, youth development with truant youth. I've worked in programs for battered women and HIV research, community health. I taught, I did a position that was kind of like inclusive education and a private school that was trying to bridge the gap between providing services and then mainstreaming students. And then now I'm working in a, a professor, I mean, I work in developmental education and then the, the activism that I do. I just, I love this stuff. It, I just, it allows me some flexibility. I can't do something that's like boring. Like I'm weird. I like, I like continuity. I like sameness, but I also like spontaneity at the same time, sure. but I, I want to control it. Of and I, I want, I want flexibility where I could re- work remotely, but then go in and I want to be able to write, but also speak, but also teach. Like, I don't want to be able to do just one thing. I don't want to only research and never see people, but I'm cool with not seeing people. I mean, that's great, but like eventually I I want to see them a little, Yes, but in a controlled setting. So I like having the variety. And so I I really, I just feel, I know that it's not the same for for everyone. I know in our community, there's a lot of underemployment and unemployment and, you know, you know, there's a lot of economic injustice that autistic people face. And it saddens me because I feel like the factors that, are keeping people from being able to survive and have the resources that they need are often factors that shouldn't be impacting their lives. People shouldn't, because they, if they shouldn't be written up or fired or passed over because they are quirky or they're not that social or they're not networking at the job on, at work or because mm-hmm. the fluorescent lights give them a headache. All of those things have nothing to do with what we're able to produce. And then everyone is not able to work. There's more to one's personhood and inherent value than work. But if you can find something that you love to do, that's kind of like your passion, your work, whether it brings an income or not. I'm glad that you asked that. There was a time when I used to feel that I wouldn't know how to ask the question if someone said, well, what do you do? Because that's what people mean mm-hmm. with your paid employment. And I was the stay-at-home mom with my kids. I was involved in a lot of activism. But in terms of income, that's what I was supposed to define myself by. I didn't really know what to say because I, did, I knew the answer that I had was not the conventional answer for society. But when I look at the autistic community and I see what so many of us are doing, and these are mm-hmm. people on disability without a job, or these are people with a job, but this is their other passion, and they're doing this thing on the side or that thing. They're doing art, or they're writing, or they're whatever, it just warms my heart to see people really living their full lives. It just, you know, that's reality. Well, I feel like this is a really valuable thing to talk about here because the mistake that I kept making was saying, oh yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. And sort of feeling this pressure, like I Mm. had to try to do whatever job I could intellectually and physically Mm. do. So I ended up being a bookkeeper. I was a, mm. a window display designer for a while. I did freelance writing. <laughs> I've done all kinds of things and, and applied for all kinds of different jobs. And I really wish that I had not felt that pressure to try to conform to society. I just love the fact that you went, okay, this is the job I want these people are exciting. I'm going to do a deep dive and this is my new special interest and I'm just going to know everything about them and go in there. And that totally Mm -hmm. worked for you. So, so listeners, listen, (laughs) (laughs) find your interest, find what you want to do. And I don't really necessarily believe that stuff about follow your dreams and the money will follow, blah, blah, blah. No, it doesn't always work that way. But I do think that as autistics, that we really need to look at what we're good at and play to those strengths and just 
go for that 110%. And like you did, just go in there, keep knocking on doors. And the enthusiasm that you had was a huge selling point for you, it sounds like. I think that a lot of times, because we feel so socially awkward, sometimes I would go into a place and I feel like I would be too hesitant. Like I wouldn't want to look like I wanted the job too much. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I think that's a mistake. Looking back, I think I should have gone in by like, oh my gosh, this place is so wonderful. I really want to work here. That's just a fantastic experience. And I'm really glad that you shared that with us. That's absolutely wonderful. Thank you. And I, I really like the point that you made about people finding, like I, finding what they love. Like there's so many people who think, oh, well, I just draw. Oh, I just do this. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you don't just do anything. You don't know what that stuff is. You know what I mean? Right. Like, don't minimize it. So it's not a nine to five in some boring cubicle. And that might be your thing. You know, I know people have to do what they have to do to survive. I'm not knocking anyone's need to have a day job or make income. But if you can find something that brings you joy and fulfillment, I don't think people should feel like it's not adult enough or mature mm-hmm. enough or intellectual enough to hear about people saying, oh, I wasted my degree or such such what a waste of their talent. No, it's not a waste. Well, and so much of the things that autistic people are good at are things that are not valued in society at the learning level. So they cut music in schools and they cut art and theater mm-hmm. and all of that. But Meanwhile, actors and musicians and artists make a really good living. So if you yeah. if you yeah. are good at it, if you have the skills and you can show up and you can do the work and do it on time most of the time, then the odds are really good that you can find work in that field. Now, granted, it's always going to be easier for white men in our culture to get that kind of work. When I realized that people who don't go into business for themselves, it's not because they can't or they don't have the opportunity. They just don't want to. Like not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. Not everybody wants to set their own schedule. And that's totally okay too. But if you're the kind of person who likes that, who likes to be self-directed, I worked for a long time doing architectural work. And so I had an office and clients would come and I would do their design and their drafting. And so I'd get to work with the engineers. And for me, that was kind of the perfect balance because I still got to work with other people, but I also set my own schedule and was in charge of, you know, what process I did at one time. And those kinds of jobs are out there. They really are. And it's important for people to find that. When I was in K through 12, I love all the hugs and kisses and drawings that your students bring you. But that's mm. 7.35 a.m. working. To, uh, no. Yeah, I, no. I'm so, I, I like higher education so much better. I teach my class. My earliest class I teach is 11 a.m. So no, you're, I just, you're, you're in a doctoral program now. Is that yes. what I heard you say? And so what are you studying? Well, I'm studying educational leadership and I'm, one of my concentrations is special education and I'm doing a focus on non-traditional leadership and I'm actually going to be writing my dissertation on autistic adults. And I just, I, it's exciting to me to be able to see how much literature is out there. I, I know this wasn't the case in the past, but right. so many of our voices are finally getting out there, um, sharing our perspectives and 
speaking for ourselves and kind of countering the narratives that are out there. And it's just, it's really moving for me and to be able to, and so in my program, I'm the only, there's a cohort of us, I'm the only autistic person. And there are some other people who are neurodiverse, you know, we have um, someone with ADHD, another person with dyslexia and so on. And then there's people of various different sexual orientation and gender and so on and race and the program. So it's, it's a fairly diverse group, but it's really, I, one thing that I love is that I'm in a position where we're all students together and they're starting to understand, even those, these are people who work in special education, but I think the visibility of a lot of autistic adults isn't something that most people are accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And so the situations like we've had the projector malfunction in the classroom where it's buzzing <laughs> and I had forgot my headphones and forgot my earplugs so where I've had to, mm-hmm. you know, start, you know, walking and stimming and burst into tears and had to leave class. And when I've had people tell, people asking someone to, oh, when we have a guest lecturer, could you dim the lights? They are looking out for my access needs. It's like they, and they're starting to hear one person used to use the word low functioning all the time. Mm-hmm. And so when I explained to her that functioning labels are really ableist and that better to talk you know, specifically about what the person's needs are, the support needs are, as opposed to calling people high and low. And so I remember about a week later, she, she started to say the word low function and she caught herself mid-sentence and then wow. she changed it. And she didn't even know I was in earshot. She yes. just, so that, that was a small thing, but I was oh, like, Oh, that's wow, you know? wonderful. No, that's a huge thing. So let's talk about those labels because I belong to a bunch of Facebook groups and that's always a huge topic of debate right now because people used to say high functioning Asperger's and by that what they meant was that people who were speaking at a young age, sometimes hyperlexic, we can dress ourselves, so on and so forth, as opposed to what was thought of as low functioning, which is I guess people who have trouble dressing themselves. Like I'm not really clear what all that means. But I've heard a lot of people in the profession say, well, and some of these people are in rest homes or just in hospitals, places that aren't necessarily about autistic care, but where they're dealing with autistic individuals and then trying to express to other people in their profession, this patient isn't autistic, but they need less help than this other person. What is some language that we can give those people to use in those situations so that they can say, well, Babs really has trouble talking sometimes and can go into a meltdown when the the shirt has a tag in it or, or whatever. Yeah, things happen. And then we've got Janice over there and she's reading a blue streak and she's helping the nurses and she's going around to the other patients and reading books to them and all of this other stuff. And yet they both need care. They both need understanding. Both of them can have meltdowns. Both of them can have problems with sensory issues. How do we distinguish between those two people in a meaningful way. Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that. I, so I cannot remember her laughing for the life of me, but I know I, I believe that this phrase, I hopefully is attributed to Laura, whose last name begins with T, but I can't remember the rest of it. <laughs> I believe she's the one that said high functioning means your support needs are ignored and low functioning simply mm-hmm. means that your strengths are ignored. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about, so when I think about people and humanity and the variability of any individual, for example, growing up, you take all the different, when you're in gifted programs, you take the IQ test and I qualified for Mensa, for example, mm-hmm. but I couldn't tie my shoes. 
I right. couldn't literally couldn't tie my shoelaces, couldn't remember my address every year. Lost, every, I can't tell you how many textbooks, mm. library books, keys. We lived in an apartment complex. It got to the point where they actually changed the policy. I lost so many keys and the, the office had to let me in because I was a latchkey kid. My parents worked. They had to let me in after school so many times because I couldn't get in that they literally started charging a $25 fee because it was just, they just couldn't handle it. And mm-hmm. It was just ridiculous. And so when I think about people like, as you mentioned, like, so, it, and then a lot of people are still using DSM-4 when there was still was the autistic disorder and there was PDD, NOS and Asperger's syndrome when we still had those different diagnoses. And then now we have just the one autism spectrum disorder, or I prefer the word condition, but DSM-5 says disorder. It is, they just talk about what they consider minimal, moderate, or high support needs. And so I feel like it frustrates me when people simply equate it to maybe self-injurious behavior or speaking. Because there's, when I think about a lot of the colleagues that I work with, fellow board members, friends who are non-speaking individuals who use AAC and technology or have maybe a support worker. And these, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, AAC, augmentative assistive communication. They might use some type of technology, some type of device for text to speech or what have you to um, communicate because they don't communicate speaking by using mm-hmm. spoken word. And so when I think about the the passion and the the what these people bring to the table and how funny and cool they are, and I'm thinking that someone would ignore them simply because the words aren't coming out of their mouths or because they have an attendant next to them, they'll speak to the attendant and not to them as if they aren't there. And it's frustrating. And it makes me think about when I was pregnant, there was this book that everybody recommended called What to Expect When You're Expected. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. And so everybody raves about this book. You got to read this book. It's been around forever. It's so amazing. So I got the book and I read the book. And there, there were some things in there that were helpful, but there were some things in there that I found really offensive. Like, for example, they talked about more primitive cultures have their, carry their babies on their stomach or tie their babies mm-hmm. on their back or have their babies sleep. I'm thinking more primitive. Oh, like my people, like African people. Because my, <laughs> yeah. my mother carried us all on her back and that's yeah. how she carried my kids. And that's how I want me and all my cousins do. I'm like, so when a white person spends $50 on a baby sling to right. wear on their front, but now it's cool and trendy baby wear, but right. you know, it's primitive when we do it though. And when we, coast, sure. when, we when, when someone else co-sleeps, it's natural and attachment, but we do it, it's primitive. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's when I think about different terms that people used to use to describe certain things in such a stigmatizing way, you could say the same thing in a way that's neutral and just say what you mean. So instead of saying, like, I think I love how people use, are using, you know, people of color now instead of minorities, because that makes you think, are you, are you minor? Right. Technically, <laughs> there's more of us on the globe than, than other, than other people. That, yeah, that was you know? always a weird you know? phrase. Yeah. 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 Or other terms, you know, that people will mm-hmm. use for different things, adult sufferers or just certain terms, abuse victim. I'm like, why can't people just say what they mean? So if they, if they want to say such and such is non, an AAC user or such and such is non-speaking or such and such mm-hmm. has you know, like if you just use a descriptive term, there's nothing wrong with saying whatever the situation is. Like you said, a person, this person may have these traits, this person may have these traits. They both need support, but they both also come with strengths. There's nothing wrong with shying away from what's really there, but just describing it in a way to where instead of saying, wow, that's a gorgeous car, say that mm-hmm. is a red four-door car. It is a sedan. <laughs> it has a whatever. There's no qualifiers. We're just saying what it right. is. So saying this person does this, this, and this, or needs this, this, and this. It's just saying what you see. 
And there's, it bothers me when people say that, oh, we're trying to ignore the needs or think that people have no support of it or that the condition is not dis- disabling or what have you. It's a disability, it, but it's also a neurology. It's also a, a way of being too. It's a combination of things. And just like me being a black woman, there's some phenomenal things about my culture and my race from to rich heritage and things that I love. There's also some things that suck, the racism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's things that I don't like that I don't want to happen, but it's, it's there. So there's positive and negative. And, and I'd much rather someone just say, oh, there's a black woman. than oh, there's one of them. There's a Sure. Whatever, like, sure. You know, so I, I think that the functioning labels is something that people are just, we're just going to have to give people language. I often repeat something like someone says, oh, he's nonverbal. I'm like, oh, you mean he's non-speaking? Or if someone right. says, oh, such and such is low mental ability. I was like, oh, do you mean such and such has an intellectual disability? You know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yes. I'll rephrase it yes. in a way that I feel is more respectful of the person and the circumstance to try in hopes of modeling them modeling mm-hmm. the proper way of right. trying to help the, trying to help the person who just omitted the phrase give them an alternative for what they can say yeah. so i think what i'm distilling out of this is the fact that they're autistic might be a factor in the way that they're being treated in terms of understanding that they don't want the fluorescent lights on in their room and so on but in terms of whether or not they are speaking, it's like any other person. Because you can have somebody who's had a stroke and they're yeah. speaking. There, there's all kinds of yeah. reasons why the things that autistic people can sometimes do are also done by people who are not autistic. And you can describe those behaviors in exactly the same way. You don't have to exactly. go for some sort of hierarchical autism yeah. I don't know, idea. And I'm hoping that if we can get people past the idea of a linear spectrum and think of it more as a circular spectrum, then maybe they will get past this very, what feels to me, a listic idea of hierarchy in terms of that there's people at the top and people at the bottom. And yeah. That's the whole thing we don't understand. That's the whole thing that we don't get. To us, everybody's a person, and you take them as they come. You know, you judge them yeah. on their merits. And that's all we want from our care yeah, providers. Yeah, it really. is. That's all we want is just to be viewed as and seen as and treated as fellow humans. It, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's like essentially the neurotypical person, like you mentioned, is at the top of the tier. And then if you're quote unquote high functioning, then you're close to them. And then the other people are Mm -hmm. supposed to be beneath. And this pecking order is ridiculous. Like I I refuse to allow them to throw any of our siblings under the bus who don't, because, and any, depending on what day a person sees me, whatever they would assume my functioning level would be is different. Monday, I may not be capable of speaking or getting up and bathing or doing whatever. By Wednesday, I might be speaking in front of the United Nations. I think you're right. Like, physical people, we tend to look at, at, we judge a person by who they are and not what they can do. And it would be nice if society would, would learn from us instead of trying to make us more like them. I think they need to take on some of our traits. Well, if the whole world became like Greta Thunberg, then obviously we'd all be better off, wouldn't we? <laughs> Seriously. She's amazing. I, just watching her rise is incredible. Let's talk about the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network. And that's a group that you can find online. I know that you've got a forum there where people can participate and communicate with other autistics. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization? Sure. And if anyone wants to visit us online, it's um, A-W-N-N-E-T-W 
O R K dot O R G. So A W N network.org. We were originally formed as the Autism Women's Network, and Sharon Davenport is the founder of AWN, which is about to celebrate its 10th year next year. Wow. So cool. Yes. Sharon was a late diagnosed autistic person who realized that there really wasn't a lot out there for women. There was a lot of, you know, like even when you think about the quote unquote light of the blue campaign that mm-hmm. I'm not even going to go there about that organization, but, right. um, <laughs> you know, even the, it was basically because boys you know, are more impacted when we really know it's more about underdiagnosis and so forth. But at any rate, there were from support groups to research to products to so many different things. There, there wasn't a lot talking about the experiences, the needs, the challenges of women. And so the Authors and Women's Network came to be and has grown over the years to do a lot more services and also has for many years, almost since its inception, has been open to gender minorities as a whole, even though women within the name. But we've changed mm-hmm. the name to reflect what we've already felt is that our inclusive community is that essentially in the eyes of society, if you're anybody but a little white boy or maybe a quirky programmer or whatever, white cisgender male, then you're not really quote unquote autistic. If you're a woman, if you're non-binary, if you're all of these different, if you're trans, for whatever reason, the, a lot of the characteristics that they believe are hallmarks of autism that they attribute to being a certain way don't are not the experiences of a lot of people. And I believe that's why so many people don't realize until adulthood that mm-hmm. they are autistic because what me certainly, I'm a liberal arts person. I love devouring reading and social science. I did the exact minimum amount of math that was required in my degrees. <laughs> you know what I mean? College, oh, yes. statistics, and I took statistics for social science even. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. I, that's not my thing. I'm not a coder. I'm not a programmer. My non-autistic husband is the IT person in this house. So right. languages, I like things like that. So AWN has published two anthologies. One is um, What Autistic Girls Wish Their Parents Would Know. And then another one is our anthology, All the Weight of Our Dreams on Living Racialized Autism. That is a partnership with um, Lydia Brown, who's also on our board. And Mm. so basically looking at autistic people of color and their experiences, or our experiences, I shouldn't say there. And then we have a health survey and a lot of collaborative projects that we do with other organizations, a lot of activism that we do. We're a very small grassroots organization, or just really happy to work with other autistic groups and other progressive groups, you know, in terms of ushering human rights of people in general, but specifically autistic gender minorities in particular. I started working with AWN as a volunteer during my master's. Actually, I had a final project and we were supposed to work with some certain select different organizations related to our field. And so I started volunteering with AWN and then I just kind of you know, stayed around and took on some other tasks. And now I'm, I'm co-executive director along with Sharon. And I just really love uh, what the work that we do. Um, recently, the Library of Congress has archived our a site as a, uh, a resource for women and genders, oh, uh, gender wonderful. studies. Yes. And we want an award for the girls anthology. We have a fund, a project for autistic people of color in need. That was, that's a project that's kind of been formed outside of the anthology. That's also in collaboration with Lydia Brown. And I can't say enough about AWN. If there hadn't been a place like AWN, mm-hmm. I don't really know where, who or where I would have gone for information because I was an adult, not a child. And so I didn't really have a home when I was initially diagnosed outside of what I could find on the internet. So yes. apparent, the adult groups were all full of non-autistic parents whining and complaining about how much they hated their kids' diagnosis. Mm. And that wasn't me. And then there were some groups that I went to that were quote unquote Aspie groups, 
where almost none of them were parents. They didn't really understand. It was the stereotypical, creepy, autistic dude looking for a date type of thing, you know, like, <laughs> and, yeah. ugh, you know what I mean? I, and do. Just, so, I do. So having a group that represents a wider spectrum of people and cares about them is really important. And I just, I'm grateful to be involved with AWN and some of the other groups that I'm involved in as well. And, and just really seeing what our community, so many people in our community are doing to usher in a better future for autistic people and just for people in general. Well, that just sounds like an amazing and wonderful organization. And I want our listeners to know that all those links will be on the website. You can find the website by Googling Actually Autistic, and it's a WordPress site. So if you go to WordPress and type in Actually Autistic there or just Actually Autistic WordPress, it should pop up. If, if not, then find me on Facebook. There's an Actually Autistic podcast group there, and you can send me a message, and I will definitely help you find it. And then you belong to another group called the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, which I've heard really good things about. Can you tell us about that? Yes, and so I usually call them AFAN for short. And so the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network is a grassroots organization that does a lot of policy work. It's one of the initial kind of, I consider it a forerunner in terms of autistic advocacy groups. It was currently the executive director is Julia Bascom. It's actually all run by all women currently uh, in, uh-huh. leader, in, the, in terms of the leadership ranks, but it was farmed by I mean, Ari Naman, an autistic male who has written books and done a lot of different things throughout the community. And ASAN has been really integral part of the neurodiversity movement and the autism rights movement. And so I'm on their board. Um, They have a phenomenal team of staff. Our board is a diverse board with, we have speaking and non-speaking individuals, as well as people of color, people of different, uh, from different backgrounds. And we, I just, there are so many initiatives that ASAN is involved in. And I would encourage anyone who is wanting to learn more about the autistic community, wants to get some great resources, some that there are in plain language or that are in more quote unquote, I don't know what the term would be, more technical type of language. Mm-hmm. And just a lot of explanations, position statements, updates. I would encourage them to go to autisticadvocacy.org and just okay. check out ASAN. They're a great, great organization. You can't miss them. See that. They've got their, their very distinctive symbol and then the, the term, our rallying cry that we use in the disability community, nothing about us without us on their website as well. So uh, I encourage everybody to check them out, as well as smaller groups that may not be as known as much as ASAN and AWN. There are a lot of really small and great groups in the community. There's like, I think about some of the neurodiversity libraries, like the one that Lee Wiley might, uh, sorry, Lee, I always mispronounce your name, that Lee runs uh-huh. <laughs> in Washington and some, um, and several others, um, some of the podcasts, you know, such as this one, there are a lot of really great resources that, you know, I just really feel like we just need to keep, continue sitting the boosting one another because there's just so much talent in our community and, and, and you know, such rich information that you just can't, you just can't get enough of it. Well, and I feel like we're going through an incredible renaissance because when in the history of the world were we all able to find each other like this? I mean, it's the most amazing thing. And, you know, when I was growing up in the 60s, it wasn't even a word, you know, there nobody talked about it at all. And so when I self-DXed in November, I suddenly found this incredible, huge community and found my people, and I'd always wondered yeah. where they were. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I feel like we're going through a real renaissance, and that 
over the next five, 10 years, that things are going to get a lot better for us. Hannah Gadsby, do you know who she is? She's a, yeah, the stand-up comic is now about to do her tour. I think it's called Douglas, where she goes around and is talking about her experiences as an autistic person. And I am so excited for this tour because we just haven't had a voice out there in that kind of mainstream media, yeah, venue in a way that, I mean, other than Temple Grandin, and obviously we're all indebted to Temple Grandin, but she's (laughs) just one autistic, you know, we can't all be Temple Grandin, I'm sorry, (laughs) we don't want to be all we don't all want to be Temple Grand, and I'm a vegetarian. I'm horrified by the work yes. she does. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, ditto. I'm a vegetarian too. Yeah, I support her you know. as my autistic sister, but oh my goodness, don't put us all in the same box. We don't even like boxes at all. So yes, you're so right, and it's yeah. like so. I, it, I love your use of the term Renaissance because when I think about the fact that, like, so when I first started getting into reviewing information about the autistic community and I started seeing, wow, I was like, what was so cool to me is that in the, I'm involved in the HIV community as well. And there's mm-hmm. saying that a lot of communities use, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And we, we talk about right. a lot of the, the early activists in the era of the 80s and so forth when AIDS was a, a really uh, raging epidemic. And there were just, it was now with technology and advancements, things the tide has turned. But when I think about in the autistic community, when I think about people like Tatiana Sasamas and there's other individuals who are okay, still, you know. Okay, say, uh, say that again. <laughs> um, Tatiana Sasamas and I think about um, who, is that? Who, who is that? Okay, so these, Tatiana is, has been involved in, gosh, since the 90s in the autistic community in terms of writing and speaking and advocating. Okay. Um, and then Lydia Brown has been around since Lydia, when they were in high school, they were involved in things. Ari and you know, Jim Sinclair's Don't Mourn For Us. That was a moving piece of literature that still think about and still quote to parent groups. And so when I think about the fact that we, our kind of elders are not elders, you know, these are all people like my age, mm-hmm. like, yes. we're still around, um, yes. we're still here, and, yes. but it's cool, it's like we're a young movement, we are uh-huh. learning, we, we've made a, we have, we misstep, and we have our infighting, and we have our issues, but we are growing and making change, and so it's just, like, I really encourage people to kind of, there's a lot of sources out there, but one easy to find one, if you're not opposed to Wikipedia, is, uh-huh. you know, there's um, a page on about the autism rights movement, and there's different information where you can find about some of the, you know, kind of like early forerunners of our community mm. and some of the work that they did and kind of you know, blazing a trail for the rest of us who, like you said, where were our people? We didn't know. You know we knew they, were, they had to be somewhere, but, right? <laughs> but where? And then, but with internet giving us the ability to locate and find one another and grow and share our perspective, it's huge. And it, I'm just so grateful. And, you know, like I think about the things that people have been through for people like you and I to be able to have an understanding of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it just moves me. When I was a, a little girl and I used to read about the civil rights movement, it just seemed so far removed to me. Like, I'm so grateful for these people's work, but I, but it just seemed so far away from my reality. And even though it wasn't, it it felt that way to me. And so now when I think about the fact that we're still trying to stop people from being shot, you know, electric shocks, and we're still trying to look at people's personhood and all of these different things that are still happening with a lot of legislation and a lot of issues and the things that are still happening in the autistic community and disability community to this day. And when I think about the fact that we still have our early giants around, it's humbling. 
hopefully will motivate the rest of us that we have younger people behind us and, and, and people who may not be younger, but newer diagnosed or newly diagnosed, whatever. We have people who are going to be coming behind us, looking at what we're learning and growing and doing. And we are, we're going to kind of change the trajectory of their lives for better or worse. So we have a responsibility mm-hmm. on our shoulders of making sure that we don't waste this experience that we have, that the, whatever platform we have, whether it's two people or 2,000, mm-hmm. that we make sure that we are at the table and that we are understood and we are heard. Yes. Well, let's talk about Steven Universe. What? Yay! <laughs> What is Steven Universe? Steven Universe. I love it, love it, love it. I'm so glad that you asked about that. Steven Universe is a show on Cartoon Network. And Uh um, Rebecca Sugar is the founder, actually the first um, all-woman created, um, you know, show on Cartoon Network. And so it's it's considered a children's show, but it has a huge adult following. The Crooniverse is gigantic. And I love it. And so it's, it's about a young boy named Steven who is half human, half alien. And he's, his mother was from an alien race of gems who essentially, they project a physical form, but they are, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in organic objects. And mm-hmm. so they are, it, it talks about a lot, a lot, there's a lot of different themes about identity and understanding and difference. And it, there's just so many cool things on the show. It's just, there's so many, so many parallels to Steven Universe and being autistic or different things mm-hmm. with regard to other marginalized groups. And it's just, and I just, and then there's also songs they sing. And uh-huh. so I just, it's nearing the end of it. I think the next season might be the last season, which I'm really sad, but I just, right. the kids introduced the show to me and a few years ago. And ever since then, it's, I've just been obsessed with it. I love it. I um, have Steven Universe characters at my desk at work <laughs> and <laughs> keychain and a lot of the avatars, my little images, you know, where you can put uh-huh. profile pics. If sure. I don't have to put my own picture, I'll usually put Garnet, one of the characters from Steven Universe. So, so tell just, us just, about Garnet. Sure. Garnet is a fusion. And so fusions and Steven Universe are two different gems that come together as one. So they don't have only the qualities of one gem or another, but they have the qualities of a new gem. Mm-hmm. So Garnet is a fusion of Ruby, who is actually a Ruby. So when you look at gemology, the actual Ruby, and mm-hmm. then a Sapphire, which they're related to one another essentially. But in the Steven Universe, in the, their world, Rubies are kind of like rank and file of soldiers, very low, low level, expendable, mm-hmm. seen as hot headed and, uh, and unintelligent, where sapphires have future vision, they're aristocratic, they're wise, and they're seen as very important and useful. And so it's kind of like for the two characters, Ruby and Sapphire, to fuse as one is seen as, it's like slumming. It's like, how dare, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. this disgusting peon shouldn't be anywhere near this blue blood type of thing. But ultimately by being together, they learned traits about one another and they've developed new strengths and new abilities and a new way of seeing life. And so in Steven Universe, there's a, we are like, we talked about the hierarchy earlier. So there's like a caste system mm-hmm. in terms of which gems are at which level and what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to be and what you, you know, and you don't really have much agency to be different or think differently and all about getting whatever resources you can for conquering other worlds and lesser beings or weaker beings are seen as inferior and or to be destroyed. And so in, in the Steven universe, the crystal gems, which are Steven's mother and her and Garnet and some of the others, like a kind of a rebel group, they basically rebelled against the way the society should be. And they wanted the way the society was and said mm-hmm. that it shouldn't be that way. People have a right to be themselves, to be free, 
to have autonomy, to be with who they want to be, and to not be dictated by whatever station in life that they were supposed to be boxed into. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that sounds fantastic. And your enthusiasm is definitely contagious. And now I am definitely going to be looking that up and watching some of those episodes. That cool. sounds wonderful. Yeah. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Thanks. What would you like to say to our listeners? I would like to say first, thank you for bearing with me and I'm being here and listening. And thank you also for listening to the Actually Autistic podcast. <laughs> and then I'd also like to say that, so this is the month of April. <sighs> It is. It is. They won't and, get to hear it till May. But, okay. But Okay. Well, that's actually better. So you all will be breathing. By then. <laughs> by then. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is my first April as an actually autistic person. So. Oh, wow. And because I do belong to all these different groups, I got a lot of warning uh, foreshadowing, as we say in the theater business. And yeah, but nothing really prepared me for the reality yeah. of it which has been really difficult because people keep posting these terrible stories about horrible things happening. And those stories get stuck in my head and they layer up. And then as soon as I see another one, well, then I remember all the other ones that are just like it. So that's, that's a difficult part about April, but we'll be past that. But April will come around again. And so even if it isn't April, when the person listens to this, if it's May, I think one thing that's important is the one of my favorite quotes is the Audrey Lord quote about self-care, about how it's a, a radical act of, you know, because it's often, especially when, you know, we get into things, we, we care deeply, we feel deeply. There's something that Cassiana says about, you know, autism is big love, go big or go mm-hmm. home. You know, we're either going to do it all, we're all in or we're out. That's how we are. And yes. we're not, we don't really do the, the in-between type of stuff. Often we, in doing that, we need to remember to take time for ourselves, to be gentle to ourselves, to understand our limits, to celebrate the things that we're able to do and, you know, not compare ourselves against anyone else's standard, but our own and just realize that we're all, we all have a purpose. We all have a mission and it's different. And so mm-hmm. like I think about the autistic people who are so talented, like some of our people, the art that they create, it just makes me want to salivate because all I can do is six figures. You know, it's like, or when I think about the music or the writing, you know, there's just so much, I just feel like we don't all need to be any one way. We just need to be ourselves. And so um, even if you don't like yourself right now, just like yourself a little less tomorrow. <laughs> One day at a time. I know it's not easy. I'm not going uh-huh. to pretend. There's a lot of great things to be about being autistic. There's a lot of great things about activism or living our lives authentically, but there's also difficult things, difficult moments that they, they happen and they might even increase. And I don't want to pretend that that's not the case. I, I love those. It gets better messages, but sometimes it doesn't always just get better. It gets better and it gets worse and it gets better. And it's kind of back and forth like a yo-yo. Right. Um, and but this is the world we have and we've got to do with it what we can. Well, that sounds wonderful. And I am going to pester Mornike for uh, (laughs) lists of these books that she's mentioned and some of these organizations. So if you will send me an email with that, then I'll put that all up on the website. So please don't feel like you have to push that backup button and desperately write down as quickly (laughs) as you can all the amazing resources that she's mentioned because they all sound amazing. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm just so thrilled to get to talk to you. And thank you for being actually autistic. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it so much. And this was great. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.